Welcome to Your Torah, a 36-week journey into the world of the 63 books of the Mishnah, 18 minutes at a time. A project of Jofa UK, designed as a special invitation to engage in Torah and make it yours. This episode of Your Torah is sponsored by Esther and Romy Tager, in honour of Rev and Mrs. Leo Sichel. Hi everyone, my name is Shira Eliasian. Today we're going to delve into Masechet Nazir, the fourth Masechet in Seder Nashim. Some of you may recognize my voice from Jofa's ads on our other podcast, The Joy of Text, where I encourage you to write for Jofa's blog. If you've never listened to The Joy of Text, check it out on iTunes or SoundCloud. And if you haven't read anything on Jofa's blog yet, check us out online at The Jewish Week. In addition to working part-time as an editor and program coordinator for Jofa, I'm also pursuing a master's in religion at the University of Chicago. Although I'm studying Judaism at a graduate level, I tend to feel like an outsider when it comes to studying Talmud. I grew up going to modern Orthodox Jewish day schools, but I didn't really learn how to study Talmud until I was in college. As a sophomore at Barnard, I took a course called Intro to Talmud Text Study with Dr. Beth Berkowitz, taught at an all-women's college with a syllabus full of academic articles on the redaction of the Talmud. The class was almost as far as one could possibly be from a traditional yeshiva environment. Since then, I've studied Talmud in a number of other educational settings, but I still struggle to feel like it's something I can really own. I say all this by way of personal introduction for listeners out there who perhaps also feel like Talmud will never be their thing. Remember the Pasuk from Devarim, It's not in the heavens. There's always an angle you can take or a question you can ask when studying a text to make it your own. That's why I love the name of this podcast, Your Torah. This podcast is also brilliant because it has handed you one of the keys to accessing Talmud. While Gemara might seem dauntingly dialogical, tangential, and laconic, we can always turn to the Mishnah for a text that is far more clear, brief, and organized. I hope that this episode of Your Torah can serve as a vote of confidence for those of you out there who sometimes feel as though Talmud is beyond your reach. With that, let's turn to the Masachat at hand, Masachat Nazir. Masachat Nazir is the fourth Masachat, the fourth section, of Seder Nashim, the Order of Women. A Nazir is someone who makes a particular kind of neder, a vow, which results in restrictions in three areas. One, the consumption of grapes and grape products. Two, cutting one's hair or shaving one's beard. And three, becoming impure through contact with the dead, also known as tumat mate. The primary textual source for the vow of the Nazirite appears in the sixth chapter of Sefer Bamidbar. We also have practical instances of Nezirut which appear in Tanakh, the most famous of which being Shimshon from the Book of Judges. Before going through the chapter breakdown, I'd like to lay out some of the key features of Nezirut that we learn from the Mishnah. Unless otherwise specified, when a person is making the vow, Nezirut lasts 30 days. During this period, the Nazir may not consume great products, cut his or her hair, or become impure through contact with the dead. The Nazir marks the end of his Nezi root by offering three sacrifices and cutting his hair. A person may vow to become a Nazir for any amount of time, whether it be 60 days or 10 years. However, the minimum term of Nezi root is 30 days, no less. Someone who is a Nazir for a fixed period of time is considered a standard Nazir, and he or she observes the basic laws that we just outlined. This will also be true in the case of someone who vows to be a Nazir for a period of time that will almost certainly extend beyond his life. For example, vowing to be a Nazir for 100 years. There are three categories of Nazirut where one is a Nazir for his or her entire life. 
One, a Nazir Olam, where one explicitly vows to be a Nazir for her entire life. Two, a Nazir Shimshon, which also obligates one to be a Nazir for her entire life. And three, a Nazir Let Olam, which is the term for the Nazir from the example above, where she vowed to be a Nazir for a hundred years. There are practical differences between a Nazir Olam, a Nazir Shimshon, and a standard Nazir. A Nazir Olam is permitted to cut his hair if it's becoming too heavy. However, a Nazir Shimshon may never cut his hair even if it's becoming heavy. A Nazir Shimshon also has no obligation to bring a sacrifice if he becomes impure through contact with the dead. A Nazir Let Olam is treated like a standard Nazir, so he may not cut his hair if it becomes heavy and he must bring a sacrifice for Tumat Mate. Let's now move on to an overview of the nine chapters of Masachat Nazir. As you may have gathered from earlier episodes, a Masachat is almost never organized by opening with the information one would consider requisite for understanding the rest of the Masachat. Rather than begin by defining Nisirut by its core features, chapter one opens with a discussion of what kinds of statements qualify as binding vows of Nisirut. Kol kinuye Nisirut kinisirut. All colloquial terms for Nisirut count for Nisirut. Which is to say, if someone utters the phrase ehenave instead of ehenazir, this counts as a vow to become a nazir because the word nave sounds like nazir. Chapter one also uses the discussion about distinctions between vows to set up the different categories of nazirut. For example, in the second Mishnah of chapter one, we learn that if someone utters the statement, I am a nazir from grapes, he or she is a standard nazir, whereas if one utters the phrase, I am like Shimshon, then he or she becomes a Nazir Shimshon. Chapter 2 is also concerned with what kinds of statements qualify as a Nazarite vow, but imagine statements that are far more absurd. Mishnah 2 considers whether one could become a Nazir by uttering the phrase, I am a Nazir if this cow will say, I am a Nazirat if I stand. This is a multi-layered conditional statement. Condition A is that the cow must speak and not just say anything, but say, I am a Nazirat if I stand. Then condition B, as stipulated by the cow, is that she must stand in order to become a Nazira. It's a machloka beit Hillel beit Shammai whether or not this statement would make someone a Nazir, Shammai arguing for and Hillel arguing against. Chapter 3 addresses the technical details of the time frame of Nazirut, how long one's Nazirut can last, when we begin counting Nazirut, when it ends, and what happens if one becomes Tameh or cuts her hair before the official ending of Nazirut. Chapter 4 addresses forms of Nazirut, which can be dependent on another person, such as becoming a Nazir on the condition that another person becomes a Nazir. More specifically, this chapter is interested in the status of Nazirite vows made by women. Since a husband can annul a vow made by his wife, her Nazirut is dependent upon his consent. In Chapter 5, the rabbis consider what happens when the circumstances upon which one's Nazirut was dependent change. For example, Mishnah 4 asks, if the animals you were going to bring as sacrifices for your Nezirut are stolen, does your Nezirut retroactively become invalid? After five chapters of asking questions around how one becomes a Nazir, how long it lasts, and how one can validate his or her own vow, we arrive at the definition of a Nazir. Chapter 6 lays out the prohibitions regarding grapes, cutting hair, and tumat mate, the sacrifices a Nazir must bring in the manner in which they are sacrificed, and finally, when one may cut his or her hair after completing the term of Nazirut. In chapter 7, we have more laws regarding a Nazir becoming Tameh through a dead body, and in chapter 8, we explore what happens where there are doubts regarding whether or not a Nazir has become impure. 
Finally, chapter 9 is a bit of a hodgepodge of Mishnayot and ends with a literary question. The rabbis ask whether or not Shmuel was a Nazir. They cite the word umora, which appears in both stories, and reason, ma mora ha'amura b'shimshon nazir, af mora ha'amura b'shmuel nazir. Just as the word mora indicated that Shimshon was a nazir, so too in the case of Shmuel, the word mora indicates that he was a nazir. We can look at how the rabbis organized Masachat Nazir in order to understand what kind of questions and concerns animated their study of this area of halacha. Rather than focusing on the core prohibitions of Nezirut, the rabbis seem far more concerned with understanding the linguistic mechanisms by which this vow operated, and the way in which one's ontological status changed from being Nazir to no longer being a Nazir. Primary real estate in the Masechet is given to pushing the logic of the vow to its extreme, to test whether statements involving talking cows can successfully activate one's status as a Nazir. What we find in Masechet Nazir is not a nuanced discussion about great products or the razors one uses to cut one's hair, but rather a meditation on language and how one moves from one halachic status to another. The rabbis co-opt a biblical category that was perhaps irrelevant to Jews living without a temple or sacrifice and use it as an opportunity to discuss halachic concepts that were of greater utility to them. Before ending, I'd like to look closely at one Mishnah together and consider what lessons feminist readers can learn from the way in which the rabbis organize their discussion around Nizirut. The following Mishnah comes from chapter 4 and discusses the point until which a husband can revoke his wife's vow of Nezirut. If the Kohen sprinkles upon her the blood from her first sacrifice, her husband may no longer revoke her vow of Nezirut. Rabbi Akiva Omer, Even if only the first animal has been sacrificed and the blood has not yet been sprinkled, her husband may not revoke her vow. The Mishnah then pauses to clarify what kind of scenario we're discussing. One where a woman sacrifices and cuts her hair for having completed her term of Nezirut, or one where she brings a sacrifice and cuts her hair because she became impure during her term of Nezirut. The Mishnah refers to this process as tiklachat, hair cutting, which stands in as a metonym for the full process. B'madvarim amurim, b'tiklachat tatahara. Which type of hair cutting are we discussing? A case where a woman cuts her hair after completing her term of nizirut. Therefore, the Mishnah will conclude that if it is an instance of tiglacha due to impurity, her husband can revoke her vow even after the sacrifices have been offered. We'll see that the concern here is that the woman will become unattractive to her husband if she cuts her hair. Avaba tiglachat hatuma yafer shehu yachol lomar iafshar b'isham minuvelet. But in the case of a woman who is cutting her hair for having become impure through Tumat mate, her husband is allowed to revoke her vow because he doesn't want an ugly wife. Rabbi Omer, af yafer, shehu yachol lomar, iafshar be'isha megulachat. Rabbi says that even in the case of a woman who is cutting her hair for having completed her term of nezirut, her husband may revoke her vow even after the first animal has been sacrificed because he doesn't want a bald wife. This Mishnah brings to life the tension feminist readers experience in studying Nazir. On the one hand, it's quite validating to find women so present in this Masachet. Not only are women permitted to partake in the vow of Nizirut, but female Nizirut appear in stories in the Mishnah and the halachic status of our vows are closely analyzed. Women are present in this halachic conversation, which more often than not is not the case in Talmudic discussions. 
However, even in acknowledging our presence, the Mishnah drives home the fact that women are subject to their husbands, even when it comes to personal religious commitments. And as Iraq can be steadfast in her Nazarite vow for days, weeks, or even months, she can be at the finish line offering up sacrifices, and her husband can decide to retroactively revoke her vow in order to ensure that she remains attractive to him. This reality makes it difficult to appreciate that women are present in Nazir at all. But perhaps, like the authors of the Mishnah, we can reorient our discussion of this Mishnah to focus not on the patriarchal realities of the Bible, but rather on the fact that the Mishnah does not even seem to question the fact that women are going to be participating in this ritual. That we are having this halachic discussion at all demonstrates that this is an area of halacha where we expect and accept that women, like men, will want to participate and demonstrate their religious devotion. We can read this Mishnah as a debate not about whether or not women will become unattractive to their husbands if they cut their hair, but about how seriously we take their religious commitment. We can recover the position articulated by Rabbi Akiva, that a woman's dedication to fulfilling her vow of Nizirut was sacred enough that her husband could not revoke it once the sacrificial process had begun. We can co-opt the inner tensions manifest in this Mishnah and perhaps use it to reassess women's involvement in other areas of halakha as well. Like the rabbis of the Mishnah, as feminist readers, we must be creative in how we read our tradition, and we must reimagine and reshape conversations found in our Masorah to meet the needs of the ever-changing present. This episode of Your Torah is brought to you by Jofa UK. In collaboration with women from around the world, who all share a passion for Torah study. If you are enjoying your Torah, consider sponsoring an episode. Find out more by visiting ukjova.org. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag YourTorah.